Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist, mom, an avid consumer. Today in the Lenten Seven Capital Vices and Their Remedies series, we're talking about avarice and generosity. Let's begin with something really important that you might not know from looking at the lives of most Christians. Scripture contains more warnings about money than it does about sex. Avarice, or covetous, as medieval authors often called it, English ones, that is, is the umbrella term for a whole host of disordered attitudes about money and acquisition. Though greed is often used, these attitudes and actions go beyond that. They include, of course, the burning desire to acquire and consume, hoarding, stinginess, extravagance in purchasing, usury, theft, simony, which is the selling of spiritual things like offices, positions, uh, spiritual authority, the sacraments, not a great list of things to sell, and uh, withholding. And usury, by the way, is lending with interest. Funny story, while researching and writing this episode, I had a very real moment of avaricious habit bite me, accompanied by a strong dose of pride. If you think back to the very, very beginning of this series, I talk about how all virtues and vices are habits. Avarice is actually a habit. You're trained into it. Or as one medieval penitential manual says, avarice is the teacher at a great school and everyone is their student. I've recognized that I have some avaricious habits for a while. Despite the fact that our income has considerably shrunk since I left graduate school and teaching, after I had my third kid during the pandemic, I found myself rewarding myself with little treats all the time. Life was so stupid hard. Why shouldn't I have that t-shirt or candle or tea latte or a cute outfit for my baby? But after several months of this, and a long, hard look at our bank account and our habits of spending, my husband and I both decided to cut back. And I had realized in this process that I gravitated towards online shopping, particularly when I was sad or stressed out. This year, I decided that I would try to break my bad habit of self-soothing with purchasing. And so I chose as like a sort of New Year's resolution situation not to buy clothes for myself this year at all, with the one exception of a dress for a family wedding that I definitely did not have. So, so far, so good. So picture me now, sitting in this coffee shop. As I was writing this episode in that moment, I started to feel really good about myself. I had unsubscribed from all the advertising emails and deals in order to avoid temptation. Sorry, Madewell. Sorry, Loft. Um, Just as one of the books recommended about avarice, unsubscribe from email chains. I was fasting from consumerism. I was, one might say, noble. Literally, as I was admiring myself, I clicked on an Instagram ad for a Jane Austen (laughs) t-shirt. I caught myself (laughs) looking at them, scrolling through them, and I just had to laugh. The absurdity of vicious habits and their power over us, and then the power of pride at their core, always reeling us back into itself. The fact of the matter is that when we combat avarice in our lives, we're facing very large and very serious cultural messaging and teaching and programming that is really difficult to avoid. 
But let's take a closer look because buying a t-shirt on its own or looking at t-shirts on a website is not like a sin automatically. It's not a bad thing. What makes something avaricious? One penitential text defines covetous, as it calls it, at its rotten core as a love that is ruled by worldly goods, love that comes from one's lack of trust and security in God for dread of poverty, believing that God and all the world will fail him unless he has gathered much and kept it for dark days ahead. So at its root is disordered desire imbalanced yearning that may swing wildly between excess and hoarding, between prodigality and miserhood. But what each of these different behaviors include at their core is the sneaking idea that God himself is not enough, cannot and won't be enough. So one must protect oneself with goods and acquisition. As Chaucer's Parson points out, avarice can really just be a basic form of idolatry of a worship that puts its trust in places other than God. Avarice can sometimes be confused with a lust for goods, sheer covetousness alone. Yet avarice has some major difference from, say, actual lust or gluttony, the other bodily uh, desire, sin, vice thing. For one, both lust and gluttony are eventually satiated, however terrible the lustful or gluttonous person might feel after their encounter with the forbidden fruit. And though their desire will return, there still is a moment of satiation and pleasure. Avarice, while certainly pleasurable in its accumulation, there's really no obvious moment of getting your fill, so to speak. We can easily recognize this because this is the premise that capitalism is entirely based on. The more you buy, the more you want. The more you buy, the more you need. And I certainly recognize this truth in my own life. The more I buy clothes or books, the more I see the emails of the things that I like, the things that I want, my two favorite expenditures, clothes and books, the more ideas I get for what I want. I didn't know I wanted them until I saw them, but want them I certainly do. And sometimes I make poor decisions in order to get them. One could respond, Grace, surely you aren't buying clothes or books with the idea of securing yourself against the abandonment of God. You're right, that's not really the case. But I am buying them in order to feel better about myself or the world in a tactic that I do know will not work in the long run and that can distract me from what is actually wrong. Am I buying them in carelessness for, say, the consequences of fast fashion on the earth or the millions of people who have less resources than I do? Sometimes. There's disordered desire at play, even if it's not full-blown private jet purchase while people die casually in poverty. And let me be clear. Buying a beautiful blouse is not a sin on its own, even if you have other beautiful blouses. There's a place for appreciating beautiful things. There's not a clear-cut line like, well, once you have 15 blouses, you are sinfully avaricious. But we Americans have long been in the school of avarice, and unfortunately, avarice has become our primary teacher in our habits of discerning what we need from what we want in terms of material possessions. I really appreciated Andrew Pinsent's meditations on avarice in the book Virtues and Their Vices. He notes this difficulty in discerning avarice. 
One of the particularities of the relationship of money and virtue is that there are cases of heroic virtue under surprisingly diverse conditions of material wealth. So, take somebody like St. Francis of Assisi, who was a young aristocrat, very wealthy, who cast aside all of his wealth, every last bit. Or then take the fabulously wealthy King David, who is not a perfect man, as we all know very well, but whose vices don't seem to stem from money, but from lust. Or take Mother Teresa, again, no money. Or the medieval saint, Saint Homobonus. <laughs> I've never heard his name out loud, Homobonus? Who knows? He's the medieval patron saint of businessmen who had a hefty inheritance, and he used it to work wonders in his native Italian town. So we meet all kinds of holy folks, rich, poor, somewhere in between. For some, the answer will be to give everything away, and for others, it's not. Honestly, if we hold too tightly to one particular rule about money, we tend to get into trouble, even the best rules. And to be quite frank, this could be extended to most of our temptations in general. Take, for instance, prohibition, which turned out disastrous. Turn to the Middle Ages, and you can see how hard and fast rules about what constituted a holy life around money created some problems of their own. Controversies raged around the Dominican and Franciscan friars, and they had chosen to live in voluntary poverty. That's how they felt like uh, was a an act of true imitation of the life of Christ, um, giving away all their possessions and becoming reliant on almsgiving, on the money that people gave them to live. Sounds good in theory, and it sounds really good when you look at somebody like St. Francis of Assisi. Yet many theologians and writers, including the poet of Pierce Plowman, William Langland, felt that this commitment actually made these friars more vulnerable to the sway and influence of money, not less. If you read enough penitential manuals on the vices, that medieval category of book that lists the sins so that you know how to confess, a very repetitive theme emerges. Most of them have massive sections on simony under the banner of avarice. And remember, simony was that sin of selling spiritual goods, which should never be sold, like offices, prayers, even the body of Christ itself in the sacrament. Wealthy lay people would bribe these friars to give them light penance in exchange for their confessions. This is actually where the modern day term of short shrift comes from. To give someone short shrift means to listen to a very short confession and light penance, not giving their vices the proper attention and depth of contrition needed for real spiritual change and for communal harmony. A steady income made bribes and the selling of the sacrament less appealing, thought Langland, and many others like him. This is related to the next idea about avarice, which is the way in which you get your money matters, not just the amount or what you do with it. Means do not justify ends. The acquisition of money does not justify the actions taken to get it. There's obvious examples like theft, fraud, lying, easily categorized as avaricious. But there's also actions that are naturally integrated into our society today, like usury. Usury is the lending of money at unreasonably high rates or the lending of money at any rates at all. In other words, the modern systems of credit cards, student loans, payday lending, and mortgages 
would have been considered sinful for Christians to partake in, at least on the end of the person loaning the money. There's a robust ancient Christian argument rooted in Old Testament practices for the forgiveness of long-term debt like student loans, which is really fascinating given some of our current cultural debates. Theoretically, medieval people believed that Christians were not supposed to loan each other money with interest at all. They were supposed to loan freely and be equally freely ready to forgive those loans if the person loaned couldn't pay them back in a reasonable manner. This is because we all belong to the body of Christ, and your success is my success. In reality, these prohibitions against lending with interest also led to some pretty convoluted and terrible outcomes as people tried to find ways to get money loaned to them or make money off that money they were loaning. So one pretty seriously sad example comes in anti-Semitic violence and stereotypes. In the Middle Ages, some wealthy Jewish folks became moneylenders encouraged by the monarchy and nobles because according to this system, this rigid system, uh, Jewish people could lend at interest because it wasn't Christian to uh, Christian lending. Not only did this practice not follow the spirit of the warnings against avarice by exploiting a loophole, it inflamed violent animosity and gave birth to many anti-Semitic stereotypes like Jewish people as money-oriented that still exist insidiously and evilly today. The nobles could use Jewish financiers to help them fund their wars. Then, conveniently, if they found the money was too much to return or they tired of the lending relationship, these same people surreptitiously looked the other direction when prejudiced, angry mobs would attack the Jewish quarter. Or the same nobles could tax the Jews at insanely high rates and get their money back. So there's quite a long, complicated, and tragic history there. There are other poor ways of making money guided by avarice. What one medieval book on penance calls, quote, disreputable crafts, which is a great phrase. So what you do matters because it shapes you. It doesn't just make you money. Medieval people included a lot of entertainment jobs like jugglers, public buffoons, which I'm not exactly sure what that entails, and heralds at arms, which, is, which are uh, announcers for jousting tournaments under this category. This brings up interesting questions for us now. Do we include sports announcers here? Comedians? I personally wouldn't. But it's fascinating to see how cultural categories about avarice and money shift and change. In a category we're more accustomed to putting the disreputable craft item within, prostitution is included. Disordered attitudes about money, as medieval folks understood it, are ultimately a force that dehumanizes other people, instrumentalizes them towards your own ends of wealth or material gain, and we're all sadly aware of the ways that human trafficking and sex work have, in the end, dehumanized many. That's the poison, actually, of all acts of avarice, not just these disreputable crafts. All people are image bearers. We bear the image of Christ. 
Avarice dehumanizes and instrumentalizes people, whether that's through theft, borrowing and lending money to make money and forget about the person, hoarding wealth, rabid accumulation of goods, etc. It destroys community. It elevates the desires of one individual above the needs of the many. We see this in certain lobbyists today getting politicians to act against the good of their constituents through massive donations to their campaigns. We see it in landlords wantonly raising rent, in the hoarding of vaccines away from impoverished countries, in the basic injustice of a billionaire in a 20-room mansion while 10 miles away a person lacks the money to pay rent on a roach-ridden apartment. Dante describes the avaricious in hell really interestingly in a way that can help us conceptualize the work of avarice upon us. The avaricious in hell have lost their individual identities, their faceless men and women with their continences to the ground. The undiscerning life which made them sordid now makes them unto all discernment dim. That's from Canto 7 of the Inferno. And Pensant usefully explains this passage. He says, The implication is that, as a consequence of the failure of the avaricious to know or recognize other persons in this life, the distinctiveness of their own personal identity has faded. Avarice impedes mutual recognition of people. In our desire for objects, we forget people. Service workers become non-entities as the man or woman seeks the perfect dining experience. The poor become a faceless block that have little relation with the beautiful purse purchased for thousands of dollars by the wealthy. Money can teach a false sense that we are self-made above the community and we become our own gods. A side component of this might be may be more relevant to those of us who don't spend money on exquisite dining or fabulous purses. Our ceaseless acquisition and consumption at all levels results in trash and waste, which also destroys community. A fruit of avarice that medieval people never would have considered is our ongoing destruction of the planet we live on through fast fashion, through the unceasing upgrades to our technology, our homes, our cars, and all of our waste. Through our consumption, we also become entangled within systems that exploit other people through low pay or even modern-day slavery. Unsurprisingly, when I start to think about this, I spiral hard. Oh, perhaps all the way mentally down into Dante's Inferno. So let's think about the remedy to avarice, which is, unsurprisingly, generosity or liberality, which are the same idea and mercy. So generosity or liberality characterizes, just like avarice does, an attitude towards money and material goods. Unlike avarice, it's rightly ordered orientation towards money, directed towards freedom, justice, and one's brothers and sisters. In a great phrase from Pinsent, someone who is generous or liberal with their money has, quote, wholesome lightheartedness about their possessions. Like a child, they enjoy them. They're beautiful. They're fun. But they know their true worth in the grand scheme of things. I like this phrase because it reminds us that our goods can actually become burdensome. They become heavy. It also puts our goods into the right light. 
The bottom line of who we are as creative people is that nothing we have is earned. Everything we have is a gift. This attitude helps us to remember to give because of all we have been given. Generosity doesn't concern actual amounts given. Anyone, regardless of wealth or age or status, can be generous with what they have. In fact, says Pinsent, all orientation towards human money should be governed by human relationship. This is a useful rule of thumb because it's flexible. It expands and contracts to include all kinds of people with different ways of being in the world, different cultures, and different kinds of needs, incomes, and access. When we contextualize our spending habits and our money within a larger framework of remembering our fellow humans, we can more adequately discern good uses of money from ones that exist to distract or to self-glorify. Rebecca Conendike DeYoung also has a good question for us as we learn to reorient our attitudes about money towards the generous. If I keep handling possessions like this for the next 10 or 20 years, what sort of character will I develop and what kind of person will I become? Medieval people focus more on mercy than on generosity or liberality. Mercy is nothing more than being materially moved by someone else's suffering and acting upon those feelings. It really is the opposite of avarice. Instead of depersonalization, mercy is forcefully recollecting someone else's humanity and personhood, even in the most awful circumstances. And an attitude of mercy needs to be cultivated. It's not necessarily automatic for us to feel these fellow feelings. To help cultivate mercy... And to practice being Christ in the world, medieval texts almost universally recommend the seven bodily works of mercy as a helpful reminder list for Christians. And a lot of churches still hold on to these. Number one, to feed the poor. Two, to clothe the poor and the naked. Three, to lend to the needy and forgive their debts. Four, to visit the sick. Five, to receive strangers. Six, to visit and comfort prisoners and save them if you can. Seven, to bury the dead. These acts of bodies materially caring for other bodies combat the spiritual affliction of avarice and puts faces back on people that we can easily ignore. Note, there's no caveats accompanying these acts about worthiness, like innocence, or any of the ways in which we qualify those who we choose to do good deeds for. It's visit the prisoners and aid them regardless of what they've done. Feed the poor and clothe them, whether they are children or addicts. The needy might include a college student or a homeless person. These are remarkably, thankfully, simple and flexible. They're based off Jesus' own actions and the actions of his disciples following his death and resurrection. These are also ways we should be considering when we think about how we spend our money. These acts of mercy do not only help others in need, they change us in our souls. Acting this way reorients us towards freedom and love and generosity itself. They transform our habits. They help us to remember our gifts and practice gratitude. They do not make you the generous, powerful patron we would all secretly like to be thought as. They remind us. We are all needy and beloved embodied souls. Everything we have is a lovely gift. 
Next week, we'll think through gluttony and abstinence, another frequently misunderstood set of vice and virtue. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you'd rate and review on whatever platform you're listening. And if you'd like to see more of what I'm up to, sign up for my free monthly Substack newsletter, Medievalish with Grace Hammond. I'm also around on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD and Instagram at Old Books with Grace, and I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening. 